Hello everyone, I'm Asha and we're continuing our series on the essence of self-realization. I actually have what it looks like now, which is probably the book that all of you are using, and my 1990 edition. That's how I can tell time has gone by. I don't have any children to watch them grow up, although I have watched a lot of children grow up. I just have early editions of Swamiji's books. I'm being comical, you'll have to forgive me today. Uh, we are up to chapter 7, and the uh, title of chapter 7 is extremely interesting. It has the word sin in it. It's called Sin is Ignorance. And the title of the chapter that we just finished was The Law of Life. Um, before I go into Sin is Ignorance, I would like to uh, clarify a point that I uh, spoke of in the last uh, session. Um, I am recording these in the living room of Che Labavan, which is the home where David and I live in the Ananda Palo Alto community. And sometimes for these webinars, some of the people who live in our community come in and sit outside of camera range. And we sometimes have discussions afterwards. And after the last session, there were a few people in the room, and uh, someone brought up the question or asked more about what I had said, which is the only way to have a clear conscience, the only way um, the only way to have true self-acceptance is to have a clear conscience. And of course, someone rightly pointed out to me that in order to have a completely clear conscience, that means you have no vrittis, you have no desires, you have no more karma left, and it, it was a bit uh, a bit of a daunting prospect. So we actually had some discussion which clarified the point, and I feel the clarification is important. A clear conscience isn't merely that you have not made any errors, because until we are fully liberated, we're bound to make errors. If it's not errors of action, uh, it'll be errors of attitude or um, a lack of perfection in the yamas and the niyamas, however you define it. But a clear conscience is not to feel guilty and to just understand that wherever I am on the spiritual path, and even if I've made mistakes, that I can just let them go. Swamiji used to always encourage us, and he had to encourage me particularly because I was uh, inept at this particular practice, which was when you made a mistake, acknowledge it, look at it frankly, learn what you can from whatever um, delusion or ignorance, to use the Master's word, whatever ignorance influenced you, then forget it and move on. So the clear conscience is not so much that I've never had a misstep on the spiritual path. It's that once I have, and I've looked at it, and I've taken responsibility, and I've learned what I can, I don't worship it anymore. I don't hold it in the center of my consciousness and chew on it all the time. I believe I said last time, but in, I'll either repeat it or say it again, when uh, there was a, a nun at Mount Washington who uh, wanted to get married. And Master suggested to her that that was not a very good idea. But nonetheless, she went and she got married. And it turned out to be not a very good idea. And it took her some time to sort it out. And during that period of time, she gave birth to a daughter. And when the marriage proved to be um, a disaster, as Master had predicted it would be, she separated from her husband and with her daughter came back to live at Mount Washington. And one of the other nuns who was there um, said to her with some um, self-righteousness, how dare you come back after you defied Master's instructions? And the nun was not about to be um, guilt-tripped like that, I guess would be the modern phrase. And she just looked at, at her sister, disciple, and said, what do you expect me to do? Do you want me to worship my mistakes? And you see, that's what guilt is. We define ourselves by the error that we've made, and then we put that error in the center of our consciousness, and we worship it, not because we praise it, but in the sense that we direct and dedicate all our energy to it. You see, that's what worship is. Some people worship God, some people worship money, some people worship their own errors. They put them at the center of their consciousness, and they direct all their energy toward it. And this is unfortunate. So the clear conscience that I'm talking about is the clear conscience of knowing yesterday is gone, I have the now, 
and I will move forward in the very best way I can. And the, the clarity of consciousness is also in your relationship to God, which brings us to the chapter that we're working on now, which is sin is ignorance. Um, I, I've spent a long time today just trying to tune in to the, the best way to talk about this. This is a very long chapter comparatively. There's like 25 or 26 entries from Master, but I want to talk about it as a whole first, and I don't know whether that'll give us time to go through them individually or not, but the whole subject seems of great importance to me. The impression that these um, entries give us, especially starting right at the very beginning, um, in the first and second one, Master Master talks just so unequivocally about the fact that if we uh, operate according to the false belief that our sensory experiences are really going to give us the fulfillment that we seek, if we take from others rather than give, he talks about um, uh, lust, he goes so far as to talk about murder, he just talks about the fact that what makes something sinful and he doesn't really try to soften that word at all because what what he means by sin is not, and he does work hard to, to get this point across, he's not talking about the idea that we are all sinners before God and that we are dark in our very nature. In fact, he fiercely gives example after example about how um, how inappropriate that attitude is. We are children of the light, and as he explains it um, over and over in this section, that even if you take a piece of gold, even if you bury it deep in the ground, and you cover it over with layers and layers of mud, so much that when you pull it out, the gold doesn't shine at all because it's all encrusted, the gold is still um, untouched by that experience. And all you have to do is remove Um, what is not gold, which is the dust and the dirt surrounding it, and the gold is is pristine, utterly unaffected by the experience of being buried in mud. So Master wants us to understand that our true nature is pure gold. It's the pure gold of spirit, and nothing in the world of creation, of duality, of sensuality, of ego, um, it can encrust that pure gold of spirit. It can obscure it. It can build layers and layers of, of actions and energies and attitudes and incarnational experiences that make the gold absolutely invisible. But sooner or later, all of those misunderstandings. Um, The word Swami is using here, Master is using, is the word ignorance. All those misunderstandings will gradually be overcome and that ignorance will fall away. And as soon as that ignorance falls away, it will be obvious that the pure gold of our spirit is utterly unchanged. It's It's a very... Just fascinating way to think about it. Now, just to explain what the opposite teaching is that Master had to deal with a lot in um, from the 1920s to the 1950s when he lived in America, there was a very strong, um, mostly Christian-based theology that people simply ascribe to, which was that our fundamental nature is actually the mud. And usually in the Christian teaching, because Jesus sacrificed himself for us, and because of his sacrifice, um, we are redeemed from our inherently sinful nature, and by his grace, we become pure. But only by his grace, which is why it leads to the theology that if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you're a sinner damned to hell. So what are we in our essence? Are we either pure gold covered over with mud, or are we pure mud and we have to be rescued in order to become gold? 
You see, there's a huge difference between those two points of view. And at the time that Master lived, the idea, you must admit that you are a sinner, was a very popular um, approach to spirituality. <coughs> so Master often had to speak against it. Master often had to clarify it. <coughs> Excuse me. He tells the story of being in a very large, he tells it in here, of being in a very large church in which that was a theology with a <coughs> a sort of fire and brimstone evangelical kind of preacher. <coughs> Sorry for that. Um, who said to the whole, I think there were at least hundreds, if not thousands there, you are all sinners, get down on your knees. And Master He said, Master said, he looked around and saw that he was the only one who had remained standing. He said he absolutely refused to declare himself a sinner because he knew that he was not, that he was a pure child of God. Now, if we are pure children of God, and if the gold of spirit is our actual true nature, a whole lot of us don't behave that way, do we? We don't respond spontaneously to the divine truth. We, we are fearful. We are self-serving. Um, we are insecure. Oh, thousands and thousands of things. We are infatuated with the enticements uh, of, of our senses, leading us away from our center to seek our fulfillment in external ways. The, the human body itself just directs that energy outward. I was with a friend after um, his baby was born, and the baby was minutes old, really minutes old, and already she was reaching out, and what she was reaching for was the finger of her father, so it was uh, just unspeakably touching to see this tiny little being who had just emerged from the mother's womb gripping the hand of her father. But on the other hand, there it was. It was the pure gold of spirit as incarnated in this physical form, and immediately it's looking outside itself to see what it can experience. Now, I'd like to think that there was a purity of spirit there that was uniting with her father. You can, the scene was too beautiful to denigrate in any way. But the fascinating part of it was to just see how quickly the attention went outward and how how far it will go after that. So what Master is describing as sin is related to what he was talking about in the last chapter where we talked about the law of life, which is we are made in a certain way. And we will find the longing of our heart will be fulfilled in certain ways. And no matter what we might prefer, assert, demand, um, have tantrums about, we are simply made in a certain way. And that's what our last session was all about. So sin is simply to act contrary to our own divine interest. And what we're sinning against is we're not really sinning against God. And when you really think about it, how does it hurt him? I mean, even him, the the divine force of Satchitananda, the infinite, ever-new, ever-conscious bliss, how could anything that one individual spark of divinity do, how could that ever hurt him? There's no, there's no logic to any of that. But what we're sinning against is we're sinning against our own best interests. We're, we're, we're acting in a way that is, is tragic in regard to our own best interest. But again, uh, Master just makes it very accessible and very practical for us to work with. He just simply calls sin is ignorance. It's simply ignorance of where we're trying to go and how we're really going to get there. I mean, all of us have done things in ignorance that turned out to be not such a good idea. But we either didn't know, or we weren't able to know, or we didn't listen, whatever it might be. We often, we have a mantra that we often say, 
I say in our community because it's become sort of part of our Palo Alto culture. It seemed like a good idea at the time. That's how we say it. And what that means is I did something that was against my own divine interests, my own uh, potential for bliss, but I acted in ignorance. And in my ignorance, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It was a mistake, though, because it didn't really work out in the way it didn't really bring me what I hoped it would bring me. And so this is what Master is saying to us. And I think he uses the word sin partly because in the years that he was teaching, um, sin was a very important concept. I was going to say sin has, uh, is less popular as an idea nowadays. I think sin is actually uh, running rampant. But the idea of sin uh, isn't talked about nearly so much, and that's probably why it's running rampant. People are, don't even want to acknowledge, as I was talking some last week, that there is such a thing as divine law. We're um, deeply determined, this particular age, to live without God and to allow the ego and its preferences to be the, uh, the arbiter of what's good and what isn't. Um, there's, in fact, a whole um, just... There's a lack of subtlety in this way of thinking because if you're attentive at all um, it, it, to, to, the, to your own inner process, if you introspect at all, if you um, think about how you interact with the world, how we interact with the world, it immediately becomes obvious that no matter how sincere um, our uh, commitment is to living in harmony with the divine that's within us, there's always two forces pulling. There's the part of us that aspires to be in complete harmony with um, that higher potential, and then there's something that is always trying to persuade us that we'll be happier and better off if we just don't try so hard, give in to other impulses. In other words, it's a war. It's always a war. The Bhagavad Gita, the famous, most famous uh, scripture of India, is the battle of Kurukshetra, and that battle is the field of consciousness. All great epics, uh, th those that have lasted for millennia, all great epics are war stories. People try to say in their modern arrogance, this is just because they were written by men or something like that. No, no, that's not the reason. It's because it is a war. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. We are always battling between the, imp, uh, the, the force of that pure gold of our spirit trying to e emerge and guide us and the habits of many incarnations that cause us to sin against our own best interests because we are ignorant. Now, the point that I... I was contemplating this afternoon that I feel is so important is that Master, especially when I, I go over here to uh, number two of his entries in this particular chapter, and when he starts talking about murder and stealing and telling untruths, uh, which are qualities that are more self-evidently not a good idea, but then we get down to, he uses the word lust, and we're talking about sexuality. And when you start getting into the, when you start associating the word sin and sex, that's when things get a little dicey for people's thinking. And I don't want to in any way um, tone down the message because it's not my place to do so and it's not the truth to do so. Swami Kriyananda in his Patanjali commentaries when he's talking about the Yamas and the Niyamas, he speaks extremely frankly. So anything, and he actually speaks of the sexual impulse is the, um, the mother of all the other delusions that we have because it moves us immediately into desire and the um, compelling wish to have that desire satisfied and the idea that I'm not con complete within myself but I have to have this external experience in order for me to be at peace and to feel content. Now, here's where I want to try to say this out carefully. Um, 
One of the greatest challenges on the spiritual path is is to trust in our own sincerity. When uh, I was a, a new a newer devotee in the early seventies, and you know, following what I followed at the time, what I called the crash and burn method of spiritual progress, which is just <clears throat> an all-out effort, and then often just getting myself terribly mixed up and confused, and then having to pull back and try to figure it out, and then trying to go forward again. Progress was not all neatly in a straight line. And one day, particularly, Swamiji, it would, would have been about the mid-70s, because I believe Swamiji was engaged in writing the path at that time. And he had some chapters, some paragraphs in there, which did not make it into the final book. I believe it was in that context, but it doesn't matter. He was actually speaking about individuals, and he was talking about, he was, he was complimenting them. I hesitate now to say it was part of writing the book. It really makes no difference. But he was complimenting various devotees, that this one is good, and this one is good, and that reason, and that reason. And he hadn't mentioned my name. And naturally, I wanted my name mentioned. And I more or less made enough of a kerfuffle, you know, so that he had to acknowledge me in the room. And I I was forcing him to say something about me. And he looked at me and he said, Asha, you are very sincere. And I accepted that and we went on. But truthfully, I was crushed. You know, I wanted to be told that I was very advanced, that I was very deep, that I was very pure. I wanted to be told any number of things. Sincere sounded to me like the total consolation prize, that I had just forced him to say something and so he had to say something. And I really got quite down about it. And in the next time I saw Swami, the next day or so, he perceived that there was a little bit of sadness in my consciousness. And he, he asked me, you know, what, what is bothering you? And I sighed and I said, well, Swamiji, you know, when you were saying all those encouraging things to everyone, all that you could say about me was that I was sincere. And I remember Swamiji just looked at me in, in, in tremendous surprise and, and also very, very concerned. And then he said, and I'll, of course I remember now vividly, I'll always remember, Asha, he said like that, sincerity is everything. Just like that. And so ever since then I've had to really uh, meditate on, on what he means. And it was a impo- very important thing for me to learn because I was always struggling with a sense of inadequacy or a a sense of measuring myself against others, all the things that unfortunately so many of us go through. And as I've come to understand what sincerity means, it means that to be fully authentic in what you're doing, which is this is not um, because I'm I'm afraid to live in the world so I'm going to live in the ashram, I'm behaving this way because I think this is how I ought to behave and I saw someone else who looked really advanced and so I'm going to try to imitate the way they're doing things. That's different than attuning to the way they're doing things. It just imitate so-and-so wraps a shawl around their shoulders, so I'll wrap a shawl around my shoulders. Just imitate without it really coming from the inside of yourself. And sincerity just means that this is really who I am. And the more I meditated on that, the more I realized that Swamiji had given me in that phrase what, what became and still is what I call the, the bedrock of my spiritual life. I've shared in other contexts that in one of Sister Gyanamata's letters of advice to her Guru Bhais, she said it's very important on the spiritual path that you find the bedrock of your own real faith and build your spiritual life from that point, no matter how small that may be. You know, it, it, it can't, you have to feel absolutely secure at that point. It could be, I know that I'm a disciple of Master. It could be that I believe that meditation will change my consciousness. It could be that I love God and nothing can take that love away from me. You might not be good at anything else. You might not even be certain of anything else. 
but there's a point at which you are certain. And what Swami gave me, he gave me that when he said that I was sincere, because I am. I'm, I know what I'm doing, I know why I'm doing it, and good, bad, or indifferent, this is, this is who I am. I'm not doing this for any reason except that I know it to be true. In fact, after that, I came up with another little mantra that I didn't have to use for the rest of my life, but I've used it often. Because things would happen to me, um, delusions, let's call them sins, since that's the word we're using, I would, I would act in ignorance against my own best interests. You know, fortunately, I'm not a murderer or a suicide or a thief, and I'm mostly honest, but there's threads of all of that in all of us. I mean, we don't kill people, but we don't practice ahimsa perfectly either. We, we kill enthusiasm. We try to push people out of our way. We, we, we murder um, uh, their energy, even if we don't murder them. We covet things, people. I don't have to say it all. But there it is. We act in ignorance. I act in ignorance. And as a consequence, divine law expresses itself. And uh, things don't always work out. But I, I would go back to the bedrock of my spiritual life, which I knew, but I also had confirmed by Swamiji, or had pointed out by Swamiji, that I was deeply sincere. And so I would say, I am a sincere devotee. This is what has happened to me. This must be what happens to sincere devotees. And that would just absolve me of guilt, not of responsibility, but of guilt for whatever sin I might have committed. No matter how egregious, embarrassing, um, elementary it might have been. Now, Sin is just error. Sin is just ignorance. And wherever we are, in terms of what we don't know, we just don't know it. I can read the words in this book. I can understand those words. I can even expound um, on you know, nuances of meaning. But the difference between what I can intellectually grasp and even explain and what I can spontaneously express in my own life, actually, the, the, the difference is vast. That's why I keep reading and studying these books, because the more of that vibration I can take into myself, the more we can close that gap. And certainly, since I started on this path decades ago now, I've become a completely different person. Things that I was entirely ignorant of then and therefore would take certain actions. I was remembering um, just some of the ways, some of the attitudes I expressed to Swamiji, some of the sort of reckless ways I treated other people, some of the disharmonies and confusions that I just kind of casually created out of ignorance, all the, all the uh, aggravation that I caused Swamiji with that ignorance. Um, I could have even then articulated many truths in contradiction to my actual actions, but I didn't know it in my chakras. I didn't know it in my vrittis. It's a very bad habit which people have to say when you try to help them or correct them. There was this man who was in the habit of saying whenever Swamiji offered him advice, he would say, I know, I know, I know. And finally Swamiji said, no, you don't know. If you did know, you would behave differently. And so it's very important when we are being offered correctives and when we are having to confront our own uh, mistakes that we don't say, I know, I know, because we don't know. In fact, um, I've heard people say even worse, oh, I know it's stupid, they'll say. It's stupid to feel this way. No, actually, it's not at all stupid to feel that way. It's very, very, you've devoted, and I say this to myself, but I've often said it to people, you've devoted incarnations to developing that particular attitude. And what is the point in calling it stupid? You don't know that it's stupid. You're quite committed to it because you keep acting it out. 
You may be ignorant about it, but it's not stupid. Uh, This is how I put it. I feel like you really have to respect your delusions. I I think of it like that. I've spent many, many incarnations developing this misunderstanding, refining it, practicing it, testing it out in lots of different ways, living it through again and again, and getting a glimpse that it might not be right, but then pulling back and doing it again. I mean, there's a lot of uh, misguided but intelligent determination that went to build this ignorance. And it doesn't help just to dismiss it, because when you dismiss it like that, you don't actually put out sufficient energy to overcome it. You just condemn it, and basically then you're not you're at war with yourself. I shouldn't be this way, therefore I'm not this way. I shouldn't be this way, therefore I'm ashamed of being this way. I shouldn't be this way because it's stupid. And then we just try to drive it out of ourselves. But sin is ignorance. And ignorance has to be overcome by knowledge, by, by knowledge and experience. It, until we genuinely experience a truth, we, we don't know it. We may have heard it. We may believe it, but we don't really have faith in the reality of that divine principle until we have actually experienced it. That's the difference between belief and faith. We believe something and therefore we'll conduct the experiment, but we don't have real faith in it until we have conducted that experiment and seen, ah, I know what that's causing me. I've had this funny characteristic in my life of a certain kind of um, error, a certain kind of betrayal, which I don't believe I would be capable of committing at this time in my life. I always like to stay sufficiently humble, but I don't think I would be capable of doing it. But on more than one occasion, I have dreamed of committing that error. And always in the dream, it's like... There's no pleasure in giving in to that particular temptation. It's like it just has happened. And almost as soon as it's happened, the incredible suffering of that error is on me. And I'm so distressed in the dream that I've committed this sin, and now I'm going to have to live through the consequences of it. And then always I wake up with so much relief. I'm pleased to say that I haven't had that dream in a long time. But it was intermittent for many years. And I always sort of felt like I'd almost figured it out. I'd almost overcome that ignorance because clearly I had experienced it. Because in those dreams, it was just, I could feel it with every ounce of my being. I was experiencing the karmic retribution of that particular error and was so bewildered as to how I got myself into that trouble again. But there was still just a little piece of me, I guess, that was just clinging to it till finally it went away. Now, what we have to understand is that God is with us every step of the way. And so when Master talks in here in various of the uh, entries that he's offered, he talks about how we should never, therefore, define ourselves by the mistakes that we make. And this is where he He speaks with so much um, determination against the idea of calling ourselves a sinner. Because if if you call yourself a sinner, how are you ever going to get out of this? I mean, yes, there is this um, belief that... I see it. I saw it too. It's dead. What did he see? I can see that the webcam is off. There's no green light on the webcam. I don't know when it went off, but I just was watching, just suddenly realized that it was gone. But the webcam itself is off, so does that mean? It's not broadcasting. Okay, but it's not, there's no light on it. Yeah, because... Okay. 
I don't know. That I think there's some loose connection with the power or something. Hmm. But the power to that one is. No, no. On the router. On the router. Suddenly it. Okay. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the webcam itself is off. Is the is the webcam? Uh, no, it doesn't have any power. It just the light glows when I'm transmitting. Got it. Anything. Fair enough. That's what you've answered my question. on. Any idea when it went off? I thought I'll just fix it and the recording will be fine with that. Okay. <clears throat> We've had a slight technical interruption here, so I'm going to try to pick it up where it was and we'll see if it actually was don't know when it went off. Every so often the um, uh, there's a particular set of demons that actually live very small in all the technical equipment and then every so often they get the upper hand and they just burst out. I, I used to always call this um, just lovingly so I would identify it the curse of the mummy because that's what it always felt like. It felt like there was this somehow magical thing that would just only come out in the most critical moments. I, uh, I'm just going to completely digress here. When Swami Kriyananda first started using, he, he started making slideshows and uh, he started co- coordinating slides with music. And at that time, we didn't have the computerized system, but we got what was called a dissolve unit. And it was a mechanical unit that would make one slide go over another. And it was, it was very complicated. And so there would be a recorded a soundtrack, and then it would be coordinated with the dissolve unit, and there were lots of wires. It wasn't like you can do it so easily now. And he was giving this program in San Francisco, and I was his uh, uh, techie, which in and of itself, if you know me, was a recipe for disaster. But there was no one else who was better at the time, or else it was just karma for me. So we put on this big program in San Francisco, and he had this beautiful set of slides and music. And I was the one who was in charge, and so it started, but it was not coordinated. And it just kept being off and off and off, and... It was just a terrible mess until finally, after like five minutes of my messing around, I think Swami himself walked over and I had pushed, instead of the start button, I had pushed the record button. So not only was it not running properly, but I was erasing everything that was on there. And what was being recorded instead was my voice that sounded like this. I think it'll be all right in just a minute. Just a minute and I think it'll be all right. (laughs) And the next day... We were in San Francisco, we had an ashram there at the time, and I was upstairs in Swami's room, and we had to re-record the soundtrack and, you know, re-sync everything. And in the process of doing it, over and over and over, we had to hear me say, I think it's going to be just fine, I think it's going to be ready in just a minute. Swamiji, finally, we were laughing so hard, it was so ludicrous. Swamiji said the picture he had in his mind was, like a tour, a, a tour guide somewhere in the wilds of, of some un, undeveloped country where we're surrounded by cannibals and we're all being moved into the cooking pot. And I'm just still brightly saying, I think it's going to be fine. I think it's going to be fine. <laughs> that was when the concept of the curse of the mummy first occurred to me because no matter how sincere we were, it would always get us. So there we are. And here we are again. Now, I was talking, though, about how God relates to our ignorance. And this is where Master speaks so strongly against what a sin it is to call ourselves a sinner. Because when we we call ourselves sinner, where, where are we going to go with that? What are we going to do with that? We can believe, and it's not an untrue belief, that the Master can save you from your darkness. And in fact, oddly enough, when you finally do come into the light, you realize it was all God's grace anyway. All that seeming effort of your own. It's very hard to explain, but that's how it is. You've made all this terrific effort, and all that terrific effort has done is just open the door so that God's grace can come in and change you. But the belief in our own 
because when we call ourselves sinners, you see, we create a distance between ourselves and the divine. And that distance becomes a vibration, and we don't allow that grace to touch us because we don't believe ourselves worthy of it, or we're so preoccupied with our own failings that we, we, we can't hear, literally, we can't hear God's loving and forgiving presence around us. We can't receive it in our hearts. If you've ever just dealt with any other human being who is determined to be unhappy and to blame themselves and to be guilty about things that they've done, it doesn't matter what you say. And, and often one becomes impatient. I had a friend who was just so determined to consider herself inadequate, just no matter what. And in fact, she was almost the polar opposite of inadequate. She was highly energetic, extremely talented, very capable, a very high-functioning individual in everything that she did, spiritually and objectively in the world as well. But no matter what, she would always bring it back to the fact that she was no good and she was incompetent or whatever it was. And <laughs> one day, I finally actually just lost my temper. And I, I don't think that I was just putting it on. I just became so impatient. I said, everyone in your world, and I named off all of these really stellar individuals with whom she is surrounded, including Swami Kriyananda, thinks that you're a wonderful person. And you pose... <clears throat> your self-judgment as, as a terrible person against all of them. I said, how egoic. <laughs> it's just like you're here, sitting here saying that you're trying to put yourself down, but what you're actually doing is you're so egoic. You're the only one who knows. You're the only one who knows the secret that you're really terrible. And all these brilliant, spiritually advanced people are wrong. You're the only one. And... Uh, I don't know if it really helped her, but shortly after that, she began to come around in a different way. I think the timing of my comment was just coincided with her willingness to give that up. But you see, if you call yourself a sinner, God will want to gift you with his grace, but you can't accept it because I'm a sinner after all. How could I have God's grace? That's why Master said if you call yourself a sinner, your, your object is on yourself in the dust that you're throwing on your head. You're not thinking about, the, about God. And also you're projecting a kind of mm, lack of sympathy onto the divine, which is not attractive or true. In contrast to that, what Master offers us is to cling to the Divine Mother. And what one of the uh, specific and really exquisite messages that Master brought in the path of self-realization and the path of Kriya Yoga is this idea of God as mother. And it's not really God as woman in any way, and it's certainly not a response to the assertion of the female power or anything like that. What he's trying to say to us is that God is compassionate, God is intimate, and God is always on our side. You know, when you, when you read sometimes about people who've done really terrible things, who've been imprisoned, who are in the news and have been heartless in their behavior, it's really uh, startling to realize that every such, every such person has a mother. And usually that mother really loves her child. And sometimes, as Master said, mother loves the naughty child the most because the naughty child needs the love the most. I've had the opportunity to visit uh, in prisons, visit people that I know who are in prison. And oftentimes when you visit in prison, a lot of the other visitors are fathers and mothers of the prisoners. And I've watched and felt that uh, unconditional love of the mother and I've also watched and felt the anguish of the mother because as much as she wants to help, the child now has to live through what he set in motion. 
And that is really our true relationship with God when we, when we make a mistake, which is that our mother will follow us into the deepest and darkest prison, and she will never give up, and she will never cease to define herself as our mother, and she will never cease to hold on to us as her child. No power on earth. We may be physically separated, the physical mother, but no power on earth can separate the loving mother in her heart from her child, no matter how much he or she um, errs. And so it is with our Divine Mother, and this is the attitude and the understanding that Master really wants us to cultivate. We think of God as our Divine Mother, and we think of that Divine Mother as unconditionally forgiving and loving. And no matter where we are, that Mother will come with us. Even if we, I mean, I know many a loving mother would trade places with her child or move into the prison with her child just so she could take care of him and help him learn what he hasn't yet learned. Now that's the part of it that I, I really feel is so important to get across. And I was saying this earlier, we have to have our bedrock point of faith and then we have to build on that. So we, we may know, and I'll use sexuality as an example because it was one of the ones that's in this book and it's the most dramatic one. And it's one in which devotees become very confused. Okay? Because it's true. Swami writes in the Patanjali commentary, it's the mother of all delusions. At the same time, almost all of us don't really know that. And that's where the, I know, I know, I know, it's stupid of me to feel this way. No, it's not stupid at all. It's a necessary learning. Even the murderer, it's a necessary learning. Sin is ignorance. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And so the balance that we have to follow here is to be very, very sincere. To sincerely want to understand how the highest teaching applies to my life, and why Master is right. But we can't impose that upon ourselves and assume an attitude that we don't really have because that's not sincere. And sincerity is everything. We need to be sincere in our actual experience and true to our actual experience, but always conscious of the fact that I'm going to learn more, I'm going to know more, and that Divine Mother is going to Stay with me and we're just going to keep going. And I'm going to keep making these mistakes and I'm going to keep acting according to the best that I know. And even sometimes my own experience will contradict what Master says is true. When I was uh, beginning on the spiritual path, Swami Kriyananda, I had tremendous faith in him. But often things he was said, I just didn't get, I just didn't get it. Or I, I, I didn't like it. Um, I, I guess what I want to say is I didn't quite believe him. He would often make very strong statements about human nature, about the nature of society, about um, what had to be, you know, the way things had to be handled or what you could expect from people. It was mostly about human nature, actually. And he would be very emphatic. And I just didn't want, I think the answer is I didn't want what he said to be true for one reason or another. At the same time, I couldn't honestly say that I knew it wasn't true. I just had trouble accepting it. So I always had to be sincere, and I learned this slowly. I wasn't at first, but I learned it slowly. I had to be sincere, even just in my own heart. I didn't always have to say something. But in my own heart, I had to be sincere, which is, I don't really understand that. And sometimes there was just nothing I could say. He couldn't explain it to me because... I wasn't capable of understanding it. But I couldn't reject it either. And so that's how we have to live. Master says that this is not the right way to go, that what I really long for, I won't find through this path. But if I'm sincere, I have to say, I don't really know that yet. And if I'm karmically drawn into a situation, and human love is a a, a really big one that way. I remember a man wrote to me, and he was a, newly married and starting a family. 
And suddenly he was quite bewildered because he shouldn't want those things because he would read all these things that Master said and he shouldn't want those things. Yes, but you do. And it's not really a sin if you're open-hearted with God, if you bring Divine Mother with you. Well, Divine Mother, maybe someday I'll be able to feel your love alone and directly and I won't need the intimacy that this love relationship is giving me. I'll be selfless enough without needing to raise a child. But that doesn't seem to be where I am. My heart is compelling me into this. So Divine Mother, walk with me and show me through my experience of this fulfillment how much greater is the fulfillment I will receive from you. The way Swamiji put it once, which was so important, he said, we learn a certain amount from having our desires frustrated, but we learn more from having our desires fulfilled. It's a very subtle point, isn't it? Because when our desires are frustrated, and we may try to say, well, the scriptures say that I shouldn't really want this, that my fulfillment comes from here, but I really want this, and I'll use human relationships because that's where it often comes down. I shouldn't need to be married. I shouldn't need to have a child. I know that what I really want is God. All I really want is God. But I have the deep desire for these things. And then if those desires are being frustrated, you see then we don't really necessarily learn. We can try to impose the right attitude on ourselves. We can affirm the right attitude. And if God gives us a life of complete frustration, we do our best to hold a positive attitude. But always in the back of our mind is the thought, oh, but I think it would make me happy. So when the desire is finally fulfilled, it's not really always that it's so terrible. It's just that it's not enough. But the subject is put to rest. I've had it. I've had a perfect romance. I've had a wonderful family. I've been able to give birth to and raise a child. And I know what that, I know what that gives me. And it's lovely, but God has more to offer me then you can put it down because you're not acting in ignorance anymore. And that's why it's so much better not to be at war with your own desires. You have those desires. You can read that you're acting in ignorance. You can know that you are, but you have to be sincere. And above all, as as Master writes here, you have to be very, very sincere with God. You have to just be where you are. And it's It's Jesus' perfect prayer. Lord, let this cup pass from me, but thy will, not mine, be done. But you see, that's the real essence of the spiritual path. It's not really what you do, but the consciousness with which you do it. Lahiri Mahashai was married and had children. So somewhere in there, there was an outward involvement that you would think would be inconsistent with the avatar's life. And it was unusual for him to be married and have children. But it was a necessary example for us to set, and we know for a fact that his consciousness was never touched. So he wasn't acting in ignorance. He was acting in complete attunement with God's will. So that's what we're always looking for. We're looking for that surrender. We're looking for that intimacy. And that's why Master emphasizes so strongly, don't call yourself a sinner no matter what you do. Know that you're always a child of God, and even if you're a little bit muddy and messy in that particular moment, the gold of your spirit is not touched. Nothing can touch it. I, I, I love thinking about gold buried in mud, because gold has that quality to it that's so different than anything else. And you, you can visualize it in your mind, mind's eye, a bright nugget of pure gold. And you can just see no matter where it is and what happens to it, it's always just as bright as ever. As Master puts it in one of his entries in this chapter also, he says, if a room is in darkness for thousands of years and you bring light into that room, in that instant, 
the darkness vanishes. It, was, it, it has no power of its own. It's only the absence of light. And so when you bring light into it, the darkness vanishes. And so with us, we may repeatedly and repeatedly act against, act in error and in ignorance against our own best interests. But as soon as we have sufficient experience to realize to not be ignorant anymore and to realize that this is really what I want to choose, this is really what I want to do, the light is untouched by all of those experiences. This is also, I started this by talking about a clear conscience. Oh, just because I did something that seemed like a good idea at the time, but was really a sin against my own higher nature, it hasn't had any effect on me. And it hasn't had any effect on my relationship with God, because Divine Mother never abandons us. You see how much beauty and freedom there is in that? And when Master was talking also in, in here about the room that is in darkness, you don't get rid of that darkness, as he put it, by beating at it with a stick. Now saying, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I've done the wrong thing, I'm always doing the wrong things, why do I always do the wrong things? That's just beating at it with a stick. It has no effect. It just, the darkness just continues. In fact, all of that, all of that is what increases the darkness. But when we know in our own hearts, no matter what I've done, that Divine Mother loves me just the same. In uh, this book that I wrote, I'm looking back here because there's a copy. It's called Loved and Protected, Stories of Miracles and Answered Prayers. There's a story in there from a friend. And he had a very a difficult karmic period to go through. And he starts his story by saying, you may think being a meditating disciple of a great master and being a drug addict are mutually exclusive. He said, but I'm here to say they are not. That's so, just so thrilling to hear that. Master puts it in his own way. A saint is a sinner who never gave up. Don't you just love that? I love contemplating that one. It's like, didn't matter what he did, the only difference between a saint and a sinner is the way he behaves, and the sinner just never gave up. He acted in ignorance and he acted in error, but he never gave up. He just stuck with it. And the way to stick with it is to keep bringing in the light. And the most powerful light you can bring in is your intimacy with Divine Mother. My friend in that story went on to say, Um, in Master's writings, and it's actually in this book also, Master says, if you're going to do something that you know is wrong, take God with you. He likes that. And so my friend writes in his particular story, he said, I took, he said, it will be no surprise for you to learn that of all the many things that Master said, he said the one that I held on to the most was, if you're going to do the wrong thing, take Master with you. He likes you. He likes that. And my friend said, So I took Master to a lot of unsavory places. I hope he didn't mind. But you see how sweet that is? Because then the relationship is always there. I watched Swamiji over many years, and a principle of his relating to people, I would call it, nothing was more important than that he preserve the relationship with those devotees Master had sent him to guide. And that meant no, he would would never push someone um, in in the direction they needed to go beyond what they themselves were willing to accept so that they would always see Swamiji as, as an understanding friend. He would never risk the relationship for the sake of some short term change. In short term means this incarnation, the next incarnation. He would never risk the relationship. He would always um, preserve uh, the devotee's trust in him. And that he had endless patience, and endless patience with just letting things unfold as they needed to unfold. He didn't need to make the world and the people around him all tidy. In the life of Jesus, 
um, because I had observed that in Swamiji so often. I observed it with me. You know, he would make suggestions to me, but when he saw that it was more than I could handle, he would just stop so that I would always be unafraid to go back to him. And in the Bible, at the end of Jesus' life, Jesus talks about the fact that none of the sheep were lost, except the one who chose to be lost, he said, referring to Jesus, uh, Judas. But even Judas wasn't really lost. But none of the sheep were lost. He had kept them all, meaning he'd kept all the disciples that had been sent to him. He'd, he'd held them in the aura of his love. And whether they were ignorant or wise, whether they made terrible mistakes or not, he held them in the aura of his love, and they held to him. And then everything else after that will work itself out. And even Judas, after 2,000 years, Master said, he absolved himself and was liberated too, because he was not really lost. The relationship was still there and was always there. Above all, that's what we have to realize. We are children of the light. We are the pure gold of spirit. If we act in ignorance, that's unfortunate. But it has nothing to do with our relationship to God. And he understands that. And as long as we cling to him, as long as we cling to her, to Divine Mother's love, then eventually, sooner rather than later, all will be well. God bless.